Hey, what's up, you guys? You're listening to the Pink Chair Podcast. I'm your host, Lee. And on this very special episode, I will be speaking to Heather Harvey, co-founder of the Black Revolutionary Theater Workshop. A bit of a tongue twister. If you're listening to this right now, you already know. We are in Scorpio season, and we also survived Mercury retrograde. I'm not going to lie, this retrograde definitely packed a punch, um, but we're here, we made it through, and I'm excited for the end of this year. Not that the year is ending, but just like the holiday seasons. I feel like I don't talk as much as I used to about myself and the things that I do, um, mainly because I've been doing all the things and to fit that into one episode would be a little difficult. Um, But quickly, some things that I've been getting into. I recently went to the Black Book Swap at Café con Libros. It's an Afro-Latinx-owned bookstore in Brooklyn and... I forgot the address. I know it's by Prospect Park, but it's called Café con Libros. Um, it was a great experience. I gave away some of my books. I gave away Hood Feminism, Well-Read Black Girl, and um, another book. I forgot the name. But it was so cute. It was so fun to be around so many other black and brown women and share our love of literature. Definitely something that I would want to do again sometime. I spent a lot of my childhood reading, and I feel like something that I can do to nurture my inner child is to um, tap back into the books that I was interested in back when I was like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, I feel like as I got older, I told myself I need to read books with facts and numbers and information if it's not about these things then like what's the point um and i was realizing that it was so hard for me to get through those books it would take me forever but when it comes to a good romance novel i'm realizing i will flood the book like nothing even with my busy schedule i've gotten through several chapters of this romance novel called uh you had me at Ola. It's by Alexis Daria. She is a writer of romance novels, born in New York, just like me. Um, and I believe she is Puerto Rican. I'm not 100% sure. But I'm loving the book so far. So shout out to her for helping me tap back into my inner child. <laughs> I'm Heather Harvey. I go by HH or H Harvey. Uh, my pronouns are she, hers. I'm based in Brooklyn. I'm a nonprofit administrator and a theater maker. Uh, theater maker is a broad term, of course. Largely, I specialize in directing, dramaturgy, and writing. My most recent project was the premiere of Rita is the Goat, which I had the pleasure of working in conjunction with Dramatic Question Theater, also based in Brooklyn, and the Foundry of West Dockbridge, which is up in the Berkshires. 
in Massachusetts. That was a really wonderful experience. And especially given the state of the world right now and given the disproportionate impact on artists of color, I am just very keenly aware of how lucky I am to be a working theater artist in this very particular moment. Um, and I'm also the co-founder of Black Revolutionary Theater Workshop, which has been around since 2015. And we exist to use narrative and performance uh, the kind of core components of theater, but not necessarily in conjunction, always working as theater. Um, but we, we work to use narrative and performance as a vehicle to advance social progress and disrupt all of the various things working against the joy and sustainability and health and happiness of Black people. Well, I am very happy to have you on so you can tell your story. Um, my first question for you is, what made you interested in theater to begin with? Oh, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's funny when people ask me this story because um, I feel like I always have to start it off with a little bit of blasphemy, which is I am a working theater artist and I'm very deeply appreciative uh, to be employed. <laughs> However, I did not always love theater. I was lucky enough um, to be a part of this kind of like gap generation in Indianapolis, Indiana, where the No Child Left Behind and some, you know, education funding kind of came together at a time where everyone who was my age got to go to the theater four times a year. And I recognize that that's not something that most kids got before or after me. That just was kind of the luck of the draw when I was born. Um, but I saw a lot of theater that made zero space for anyone who had an experience like mine, whether that's a Black experience, um, a feminine experience, a queer experience. I saw a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of adaptations of Dickens, um, a little bit of Greek you know, tragedy here and there. And it wasn't until I saw Jitney by August Wilson, directed uh, by uh, Tim Douglas, when I was 14 years old, starring David Allen Greer. <laughs> but it wasn't until I saw that, I was like, um, oh, sorry, not David Allen Greer, David Allen Anderson. Um, I saw that when I was 14 years old and it was the first time that one, I saw a black person who sounded black and sounded honest to their black experience. There wasn't a lot of um, kind of whitewashing a black experience in the language. And that's what got me one into the power of writing recognizing that whoever owns this story really is shaping the honesty of the narrative. And two, that was the thing that made me realize that theater didn't have to be this stiff Western Aristotelian process that only showed one experience. And from then on, I was like, okay, bet I can do this. I can force a place for myself, if nothing else. Yes, something I learned, especially from the pandemic is like where you don't see space, like you got to make that space for yourself. But it can be super hard and emotionally taxing, but you're kind of like a trailblazer in a way, like you were a part of that group and now you are trailblazing within this industry as well. So then people that could come after you are also um, represented. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I, uh, I never want to say that, I, I never want to position it in such a way that I'm not, you know, giving flowers to the people who've done the work before me. And there are so many people who've done the work to ensure that 
one, we recognize that theater isn't just this like overly academic industry that, you know, we embrace the fact that there are people from various fields and experience and it's not just this kind of like classist gatekeeping practice. Um, and also that we recognize the labor that goes into theater. And so, um, you know, I, I mentioned August Wilson and, you know, there's also like Susan Laurie Parks and, you know, Dominique Morisseau and, you know, Katori Hall, these like big names in theater. Um, but even before then, there was the Black Revolutionary Theater Movement of the 60s and 70s, which is part of the name. Learn about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Black Revolutionary Theater Movement was a part of the Black Arts Movement of the 60s and 70s. It actually has its birth in New York City, in the downtown theater scene. And when we talk about downtown theater, we get so wrapped up in, you know, the advances of white indie theater, which is compelling, but there is a Black indie theater story. And that Black indie theater story uh, was a Black nationalist movement that really retook theater spaces centered Black experiences and turned theater into a vehicle to confront theater audiences with their own privilege and their impact on Black communities. And we have some plays that came out of that, like The Dutchman. Um, you know, we have uh, Funny House of a Negro, Slave Ship by Mary Baraka. Um, but I think a lot of people, unfortunately, are not familiar with that aspect of theater history. But when we talk about you know, trailblazing and creating spaces for others, I want to recognize that the only reason why I'm here doing, you know, what little bit I can do is because there were pioneering Black and Brown artists, queer artists, women artists who were taking these theater spaces and oftentimes taking spaces that weren't intended for theater and doing radical revolutionary work that you know, force audiences to really confront the reality of the world that they lived in. And it truly changed the theater scene. And then of course, as academia and theater and, you know, upper brow art <laughs> tends to do, we erased that history as we moved on. I feel like up until I got to middle school, I thought of theater as like a monocle, people dressed up very nice everybody's hair is done suits and ties and it wasn't until i discovered in the heights i was just like people that look like me what's going on like i have i was never exposed to that i went to school in new york city in the inner city they weren't taking us to see broadway they might roll out that tv that big tv um for like a, a movie day or a movie afternoon. But other than that, I was just like, theater is not a space for me. Well, that was me growing up. Um, but I'm glad there are people like you that are making those spaces and the people that came before, like I had no idea about black theater history whatsoever. So I'm glad I'm getting informed right now when I can inform my listeners as well about this. I'm glad I can, I can share that tidbit. I think you know, there's a whole aspect of theater history, you know, not to sound too conspiratorial, but like when we're educating people, um, theater historians, critics, writers, about the field that they work in, we're so caught up in, you know, Shakespeare, uh, classical Greek, uh, classical Roman, we make sure that you don't leave college without understanding what Senecan play structure is and the difference between the Elizabethan and Jacobian eras. And that's cute. Yeah. But 
it's also valuable to know that while we recognize this kind of evolution that came out of classical Greek theater, this, this um, hot spot between ritual and performance that we trace much of Western theater history to, there were completely different practices that were happening around the rest of the world. Theater doesn't belong to whiteness. And the more we position it as something that belongs to whiteness, the more we empower critics to rest on the laurels of racist misinterpretations of what effective storytelling is, of what effective performance is, and whose stories deserve to be told. But the fact of the matter is that there were, you know, shadow theater portrayals of the Bhagavad Gita in Indonesia that were going 17 and 20 hours long. There's the epic of Sunjata, the epic of Gilgamesh, these things were not just a process of oratory, which I think is part of the misunderstanding that we're told about griot practice. It wasn't just someone reciting a story from one generation to another. There's an element of performance in there. There's an element of crafting narrative in there. That is theater. And that is a theater practice that belongs to various communities of color all around the world. And when we only center these white experiences in I would argue, especially when we only center these white experiences and then miseducate communities of color, that these white experiences are the only valid experiences of theater history. We're telling them not only do they not have a place in current theater history, but that there's no point in trying to find their place in validating their stories within theater. For sure. And their stories deserve to be heard. Absolutely. So on to your nonprofit. <laughs> what was your proudest moment so far since you started in 2015? Hmm. That's a big question. Um, yeah, that's a big question. I think I guess one of, one of the highlights that I'm very proud of is last year we launched a program called Revolution Now to support emerging writers who were crafting uh, original theater pieces in response um, to this particular moment. And part of that process involved giving them dramaturgical and directorial support so that they, they could write these original pieces. But another part of that process involved breaking down the barriers of gatekeeping that prevent black artists from getting work. So we help them synopsize their work. We help them craft elevator pitches and blurbs and treatments so that they were fully prepared so that they came out of this program with a kit so that they could get commissions so that they could pitch and query agents and publishers and theater um, and theaters to see if they could get picked up in this season. We also produced each of those shows for an audio drama and we paid every single one of those artists and all of our writers. So I think that's one of my proudest moments. And then just operationally, I'm just really proud of the fact that we pay all of our artists and that we're transparent. We pay everybody $20 an hour. We wish we could pay more. Uh, but there are a lot of theaters that still work on the premise of paying people a flat fee. And when you divide it by the number of hours people are working, a lot of times that breaks down to like $2 an hour, $5 an hour. Um, when we look at pay disparity across industries in New York, we often skip the theater industry. 
And the fact of the matter is that there's a reason why we use the phrase starving artists, and it's because the industries are starving their artists. They definitely are. They definitely are taking their stories, profiting from them, moving into the neighborhood because it's cheaper. That's a whole Mm -hmm. other story. But it's all connected in some way. Um, I would say we have to. Horns outside. (laughs) Yeah, I would say we have to. I think there are a lot of theaters, especially since last year. And to be fair, theaters are just like any other you know, subsector of the nonprofit industry writ large, and that every four or five years they remember that Black people exist when some national tragedy captivates everyone's attention. And so last year we were back in that cycle and a bunch of theaters were releasing statements and talking about how they're recommitting themselves to anti-racism and equity and all of these things. And at the end of the day, one of the best ways that any organization, whether you're in theater, whether you're in education, whether you're in corporate America, one of the best ways to commit yourself to serving disenfranchised and marginalized communities is making sure that you recognize their labor. Like look at your own labor practices, look at how you treat the people in your employ, look at how you treat the people that you contract. We're talking about people who have to come with their hands out, giving their labor, not because they want to, but because our livelihoods are dependent on it. We live in a society that makes sure that you can't afford to feed yourself or go to the hospital or do anything to take care of yourself if your labor isn't being validated. So yeah, yeah, theaters could afford to improve greatly (laughs) in that accord. Right, and it's already super, super hard to survive here. I think New York just became the most expensive city to live in in the United States like mm-hmm. last week. Mm-hmm. And to be giving people crumbs for doing hard work. No, it does not sit right. Going a bit into the past, if you could tell your younger self, maybe before you had the experience of watching these plays, what would you tell yourself about where you are now? and any advice you would give a younger self? Hmm. I think the advice I'm now inclined to give my younger self um, would be to not be afraid to rest and to not assume, you know, that old adage, I think a lot of us grew up with this idea that you have to work twice as hard to get half as far Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of us you know especially those of us who try to make it through kind of like this academia pipeline into you know the middle class and upper middle class and all of that we start assuming that capitalism is a meritocracy and it just isn't and there were a lot of times I was really disappointed especially in my late teens and early 20s, when I felt like I was given blood, sweat, and tears, bending over backwards. I was losing hair, working, 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 getting, you know, two, four hours of sleep a night. And at the end of the day, sometimes it pays to take a look around and realize when the game is just set against you. And I'm not saying that that's a time to give up, but I think we need to recognize that part of the narrative of success, part of the way that people achieve success is by taking care of themselves. And I definitely didn't know how to do that. I did not arrest when I was younger. 
Uh, I'm not saying I'm particularly good at it now, but <laughs> I think if I could have gotten a jump on it when I was in middle school <laughs> uh, and disassociated this idea that's like, if I just abuse myself enough, maybe I'll quote unquote make it. Like, no, 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 no. You're in a situation where you feel like you have to abuse yourself because you live in a, you know, cis hetero patriarchal racist hellscape that is setting everything against you. And you're not gonna make it just by using the master's tools against yourself. Something that I keep reminding myself is that rest is radical. Like that nap that you're taking, I feel like a lot of artists are in a similar boat of like, I have to do all the things, I have to be at all the events, I have to do all the work and be everywhere and you can do all that and shit still might not work out just because mm -hmm. for unfortunately for POCs like it's not really set up <laughs> not really set up for it to work out for us and it never really was mm -hmm. but taking that nap and saying hey like this is not set up for me I'm aware of that I'm doing the best that I can I'm telling my story I'm telling the stories of the people that came before me I'm doing my part but I also need to sleep and eat a well-balanced diet to be able to perform and be my best. Like that's so hard to like grasp sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that reminder that rest is radical. I, I wish I could go back in time and put that on a sticker and just like slip it on top of my laptop when I was 12, you know? <laughs> what am I talking about? I have no laptop when I was 12. I had a big boxy computer, <laughs> put it right in the middle of that monitor. Rest is radical. I'm dreaming. That's still like, it's still super hard. I feel like I'm in that early 20s. Uh, I have to be doing things, but the older I get and the more experienced I get, I'm just like, wait, I'm putting my back into this right now. What am I getting in return? Okay, money. I need that to survive. But like, how do I feel at the end of the day? Like, am I okay? How am I going to sleep? Am I revenge scrolling which a lot of people do if they're working in a job where they can't look at their phone as much which is most jobs and they're just scrolling on instagram for an hour trying to get that time back subconsciously we don't need that right now we're in the uh the great resignation mm -hmm. like as a collective everybody's just like i don't fucking need this job <laughs> mm -hmm. they don't value me at all yeah and that's unfortunately i think part of um i think that's a, a bit of perspective i wish i had in my early 20s i was working my behind off i was always on a grind honestly i was i was either on a grind or i was sick because i was constantly on a grind and when i was sick i was usually on a grind too and there was a period of time i was in and out of the hospital a lot and of course you can't afford to be in and out of the hospital when you're working your behind off and you're in your early 20s. And it didn't occur to me until I reached a point in my career where I could start making hiring decisions that part of the reason why we keep devaluing the labor of folks in their early 20s is because it's cheap. When you can convince an entire cohort of people that their labor is worth less than the cost of living, and last time I checked, 
um, which was a couple years ago, the cost of living in New York is roughly $22 an hour. And I believe that is based on the ability to live like with roommates and eat a couple of semi-balanced meals. Like we're not talking about living alone when a one bedroom is what, $1,600, $1,700 a month. If somebody is working for $15 an hour, which is now minimum wage, it wasn't when I was in my early 20s, $15 an hour, taxes are coming out. You have to pay, what, $5.50 round trip just to be on MTA. Or you're biking and putting your life on the line because the way people drive out here, whew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Does not make me feel like I'm going to live very long. I'm going to just <laughs> Those bike lanes look like the entire lane to them sometimes. Oftentimes they are. And then half the time you got to share it with the bus. That's a whole different thing. But like... If you're trying to pay people $7 an hour beneath the living wage, and on top of that, you have all of these required fees that are coming out of it, people are incentivized against their health. And when you're incentivizing an entire demographic of people against their health, you're simultaneously penalizing them for showing up sick, for showing up late, for showing up honestly at the limits of their own agency. And than penalizing them because that's going to impact their work performance. And then doubling down on that penalty because as soon as that paycheck hits and they pay their rent and they're eating whatever they can afford to eat, all of the ways that we're pulling away from their health, their sustainability, their joy, all that's going to show up in productivity. And so we keep moving goalposts and saying, well, maybe you'll get, you know, promotion A if you do X, Y, and Z. And that's just this weird gaslighting language that we've developed in professional workspaces that's incentivized a bunch of people who are, statistically speaking, more educated than generations before them, who are working several hours over and are living like a fraction of the cost of living. It's absurd. It's crazy. You will tell them that you are coughing up lungs, um, you have a headache, your stomach hurts, and they're just like, but are you gonna come in because you don't have anybody to cover your shift? Or are you gonna finish that project still? And I feel like with the remote working, it got a little crazier because it's just like, okay, but you're at home, so why can't you? Like you mm -hmm. don't physically come into an office, like you're not gonna get anybody else sick. So yeah, you can be sick and like work, that should be okay. And I feel like it also teaches people to not trust their intuition because your body's telling you, yo, like lay down, drink some tea eat some soup relax do that and then you're thinking but i have to work my boss is telling me i have to work and for me to afford this tea and soup i have to work and it's like by the time you're done with everything yeah you got your tea and soup but you're probably sicker than you started mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's absurd it's like we're we're literally living in like an early 2000s dystopian indie movie but if you flash back to all of those movies, you know what they weren't doing? Trying to keep the wheels of capitalism moving. This is some bullshit. Like people should not be, wor people should not be working at this extent, especially if the work is not continuing to their longevity. If the, if the work is not supporting them, if it's not supporting their family. We have people who are working to starve. We have people who are working to be functionally underhoused. It's really bad, especially with the storm that we just had, the evictions. I'm just like, we can't have both. We can't have entire basements flooding 
and you also evicting people at the same time, it's not gonna work. Something has to be done here. Even evicting people right now, like I was watching this video on Instagram and like the police was just throwing mattresses into the street. I was just like, did we forget what happened for the last year and a half? Do we not know what we're still in? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a little insane. And then to push people into shelters where there's a high concentration of people, basically pushing them into sickness. We don't know what's in mm-hmm. there. Just the other day, I was noticing like the anti-homeless architecture that we have here. Mm-hmm. Spikes. I was at Penn Station trying to find like a place to sit before I took um, the Long Island Railroad, and I'm like, everything has spikes on it. Everything's uncomfortable. Every seat has a little armrest in between. Like, no one can get comfortable here. And I was like, oh, wait. They're trying to hide people being houseless by making everything uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, this city in general, after that storm, just needs a whole, I don't know what, we need to revamp. Because they waited to even tell people about the storm and, like, people had already passed due to the storm. And then they were like, wait, actually, go to higher ground but there's a tornado so go to the basement i'm like where do we go um and then also being a native new yorker and an artist at the same time you just feel extra displaced i believe because it's like okay it's already too expensive to live here Mm -hmm. everyone's trying to move here at the same time to also be like on the borderline of poverty just like eating cup noodles as as a collective right now mm-hmm. um it is just like where do you go here because new york city is just not looking like an option yeah it's it's fascinating to me that just from a, a political and economic perspective part of the economic engine of the city is the arts and culture scene. We have a massive arts and culture industry. Um, And I'm not just talking about, you know, Broadway where people are waiting in the rain to spend their last $700 so they can see a Hamilton, you know, see Hamilton. Another aspect of our arts and culture scene, you know, is the underground. It's the indie scene. It's the amazing theater that you can see out in Brooklyn. It's the pop-up environmental theater that goes up through the Bronx and in Reese Beach. You know, we have all of this stuff. We have amazing museums. We have amazing dance performers and concert series and all of that. That's part of the reason why New York gets so many tourist dollars. That's part of the reason why so many college students graduate and move here when they're 22 and then quickly find out how broke they're going to be by the end of the year. There's There is a narrative that draws people here and the arts and industry scene is a part of that narrative. So the dual violence of that, when something is so dependent on arts and and culture uh, to be a thriving industry and yet to starve that industry, that industry is basically only functional because you have a lot of people who are working two, three, four jobs. Two, three, four jobs 
that usually, statistically speaking, are in industries where people are disproportionately abused. There's a reason why a lot of actors, for example, are also baristas, bartenders, servers. Part of that is just because of hours. You need time to be able to rehearse and things like that. Um, and it's hard to hold down, say, like an office job if you have to be out and swap a Monday for another day, those kind of things. But then you have an entire sub industry that only exists to take advantage of a significant portion of the population that is simultaneously making the city money, making producers money, making venues money, and then themselves can't afford to live here. There would be there would be no New York City if there was no arts, if there was no theater going on right now. It would be nothing. And I worried about that a lot during the pandemic. I was just like, wait a minute. A lot of artists that I know, like they weren't paid on the books. So how are they supposed to now file unemployment? How are they supposed to sustain themselves? Like a lot of them had to move away from a city that they helped lift up and I just felt like that really was not fair to them because without them who'd want to come here like yes the food is nice yeah the views are nice yes but that's not everything yeah it's such a shame I'm I, I've gotten to the point now where I'm starting to think of um, the more predatory natures of capitalism, the way that we systemic, we systematically disenfranchise um, entire sections of labor. I'm starting to think about it almost like a like like dependency. It's like this this city's economy is so dependent on being able to abuse artists and being able to abuse the un and underdocumented, being able to abuse disabled folks, being able to abuse folks of color. There are just entire <laughs> swaths of this city's industry and business that only exist to take advantage of labor that can't afford for whatever reason to fight back, whether it's because they're working so many jobs that they don't have time to be in court, or whether it's the weird way that our you know, housing system is set up that like if you're in housing court, it works against you to be able to rent another apartment. Like we put so many things up against a person just trying to take care of themselves. Take care of themselves and also like live out their passions. It's also that we have to pick like, do I eat or do something that I really wanna do? Do mm -hmm. I buy my toiletries or live my dreams? I have to pick between those two. Like that's not, that's why so many people are miserable at their jobs right now because they just picked the society from what they had to and not what they really wanted to do in their heart. Yeah. And, um, it, and it ends up working against people's ability to advance within their industries. It's like, if you take the arts, for example, you know, actors get better from being able to act. Directors get better from being able to direct. Writers get better from being able to write. If you can't afford to take time to do your craft, you're never going to advance enough that you will get paid more to do your craft. And so we're just creating this system of checks and balances that are strategically keeping entire portions of an industry just 
marginalized so deeply that they'll never be able to advance to a place where their craft will be able to feed them. We definitely need to move from surviving to thriving in the coming years. Um, what is the next move for your nonprofit? What do you guys, that's like my last final question for you. Like where are you guys planning to go in the future? What are your goals? You know, it's an interesting situation because the pandemic really forces most organizations to do this weird game of double dutch where you're trying to figure out how to advance and also go back. Um, and so we're very much in that same situation. We have a monthly program called Melanated Mondays, which showcases the work of emerging writers. Um, and they're all focusing on a new issue that disproportionately impacts Black people. Every month we partner with nonprofits, organizers, educators to talk about one, what creates that issue? What makes the world that we live in the way that it is? And two, how do we as citizens disrupt that issue? Um, Melanated Mondays existed before the pandemic. It was something that we were doing live. And it's something that we're really proud of. It's something that we want to get back to doing live. And yet at the same time, as an organization that exists in service of our communities, our communities, you know, being black folks, um, we're not going to be the ones to, per, you know, to propagate the spread of a pandemic amongst our community. We're not going to be the ones to put our community at risk. Um, so chances are that'll remain virtual. And in terms of doing, you know, live performance and things like that, we've been very fortunate to be able to perform throughout New York City, um, to be at, you know, tiny, you know, Brooklyn darlings like Jack and to be at, you know, well-respected, world-renowned places like Here Art Center. And we recognize that we're really lucky to do that. And you know, as separately from Black Revolutionary Theater Workshop, just as a freelance director myself, there is a unique gift in being able to do your practice live and in person. I just got back from being able to do that in the Berkshires. However, <laughs> there's also a consideration about when you're saying to a group of actors, hey, let's get together in this uncertain situation and uncertain time, when we have breakthrough cases, when we don't know what the situation with the audience is going to be, and you know, in particular, as a company that's you know juggling writers and directors and actors, theater is a collaborative form. You have a lot of people you're potentially bringing together into one room uh, that's hopefully ventilated, hopefully with air purifying, and you know all of these things. Um, but you introduce more people into the situation. It, you know, it becomes really uncertain. So we're all hungry to be able to produce new works on stage again. We love partnering with colleges and universities. Um, we love being able to, you know, go out to Connecticut and Vermont and North Carolina. And, you know, I've even worked with a theater company in Hawaii. It is one of my favorite things in the world, but uh, I'm not in a rush to compromise the health and safety of my artists. So as far as what the goal is right now, I'm trying to take care of as many Black people as possible, keep them paid, and not be a part of anything that complement or complicates their own longevity, their own comfort, their own sustainability. I think, first and foremost, that's really what the core of our operations are. And if such a time comes in the near-ish future 
where we can return to a previous form. We are developing three original plays right now. Um, the last time we premiered a new play was 2019. Um, and we, you know, took that around to a few places. Uh, that was a play I wrote with my colleague Mia Kogavia called After Swarm. We actually premiered it at Jack in Brooklyn. Um, and so we're, we're developing new works right now. I'm developing a new work. Miyoko Gavi is developing a new work. Uh, Tim Craig is developing a new work. Um, we're relaunching Revolution Now very shortly, like literally by the end of this month, we'll be relaunching Revolution Now for its second year to take on a cohort of three to four Black writers. We'll be paying them $250 each as they develop new works. And we'll be producing those as audio dramas. Um, and we'll also, you know, continue to release more audio dramas every two weeks, every month. Um, we're going to keep on keeping on. We're going to keep applying for grants and seeing how many, you know, people we can support. We've been fortunate enough to work with a number of nonprofits and organizers and educators who are really working to disrupt labor injustice, housing injustice, uh, food injustice, um, and we're going to keep looking for partners, both in New York City and around the world, that we can disrupt all of the various mechanisms that are working against the joy and sustainability and health of Black people. And for me, that's really what success is, is using our skills and our abilities and our networks to be able to at least marginally improve the lives of as many Black people as possible, but also to educate our audiences so that as many people as possible can be a part of these efforts. And yeah, that's what we're going to keep on doing. And hopefully, you know, hopefully one day um, it'll get to a situation where we kind of return to form a little bit. It was nice having an office for a while. You know, it was nice <laughs> meeting in person and, you know, planning tours and things like that. But I think the more responsible thing right now is to keep an eye on the virtual, keep an eye on the more organizing related partnerships. Um, I was really proud of our work last summer when we actually did a, a pro bono workshop and petitioned a series of AMLAW 200 corporate law firms to reallocate more hours to court-involved Black people. Um, we had a number of people who volunteered to use their 4th of July to focus on that instead of celebrating what I would argue is not a holiday meant for us. It is um, not, it is not <laughs> whatsoever. It is not, it is not for us, it is not by us. Um, so we offered an alternative and I'm glad so many people signed up for that. Uh, we've highlighted a number of nonprofits, especially um, last summer when a number of people found themselves being court involved, including, um, you know, bail funds and uh, mental health support funds. Um, and I was really proud that we were able to drive thousands of dollars in those directions. So we're going to keep doing that quality of work. Uh, we also offer a program where um, you might be aware of this as a, as a working artist yourself, but a lot of organizations, when they offer programming to artists, they often charge artists to submit their work or to submit their applications. Um, that's not something we're going to do. Uh, we don't think that Black artists being oftentimes underemployed, underconsidered, undervalued should have to pay 
to be in an equitable consideration pool. Uh, so what we offer instead is a highlighted series of organizations that are doing good work that are relevant to pressing issues impacting Black communities in those moments. And we say, hey, if you can offer what you feel is, you know, similar to a submission fee to one of these organizations, go for it. If you can't, let us know. We're going to ask one of our donors to do it to do it on your behalf. Last year, that was really successful. And through a number of our donors, we reached out and said, you know, hey, this artist just submitted for Revolution Now. They wanted to send $20 to Loveland Foundation. And we had so many of our donors who were like, hey, uh, I just donated $20 in the name of this particular artist to every organization y'all highlighted. So we're looking to highlight more organizations this year. Um, and we're going to keep working in that particular direction. Well, I love everything you guys do. I'm definitely going to share um, Revolution Now with my writer friends so they're informed. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Would love to see them win and everybody win. Um, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and sharing your organization and what you've done thus far. You're doing amazing things. So grateful to have you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to share this episode and your work with all of my friends and colleagues as well. Thank you. That is all for this episode, you guys. I really hope you enjoyed. You can check out all the amazing work that Heather does at the Black Revolutionary Theater Workshop on IG at the BRTW on IG. Happy Halloween.